Find uh, Genesis chapter 8 tonight. And what we'll be looking at tonight, uh, covering a good, good amount of material again as far as chapters. Uh, we'll begin in chapter 8. We're going to try to just hit some high spots all the way through chapter 11. Looking at the subject matter this evening, the God of grace and new beginnings. The God of grace and new beginnings. We'll begin in chapter 8, a little overlap with what we covered last week. We'll cover a few things a little more in depth tonight. And then like I say, we will go all the way through partially uh, chapter 11. After these chapters... Once we hit chapter 12, we will slow down again and begin looking a little more in depth when we return uh, after Thanksgiving. But uh, look at chapter 8. It says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month and the In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening and behold in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. 
Every morning, uh, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh." When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. We'll stop there for now before we get over into uh, 10 and 11. Now, folks, as we saw last time, the the flood acted to effect a reversal, if you will, of creation. When all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. Now, in Genesis 1, we saw a watery chaos at the beginning. Remember that? When the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep. And with the flood, we see God returning the earth to that same form of a watery chaos. Now also, as we saw, the the flood story divides into perfect halves of decreation and then recreation. With the second half... Providing a mirror image of the first half, but in reverse order. Remember talking about that? What did we call that? It's a literary structure. A chiasm. C-H-I-A-S-M. A chiasm. Again, what it is, is if, if you could... Picture words written on a board again. I I needed my board up here again. And each line being indented in coming this way until you get to a transition verse. And then going back out the other direction. And each line, the top line here mirrors the very bottom line but in reverse order. And each line perfectly mirrors in reverse order the one that corresponds to it in the other half. You follow what I'm saying? It's a literary structure. Moses' attention to detail is amazing. But folks, we shouldn't be surprised by that at all because what is the Scripture? The Scripture is the inspired Word of God. And what do we see about God? That he is an amazing God of detail. Even the small things. So in many ways the recreation after the flood mirrors the original creation. 
The recreation after the flood mirrors in many ways the original creation. Now, as Genesis 8 opens, we see that God remembers Noah, and he also remembers everything in the animal kingdom. Now, folks, with God, remembering is more than recollection. When God remembers something, he acts. When God remembers, he acts. When God remembered Abraham, what did he do? He rescued Lot. He remembered Abraham and he rescued Lot. When he remembered Rachel, what happened? She conceived. As the Old Testament scholar Brevard Child says, God's remembering always implies his movement toward the object. His movement toward the object. The essence of God's remembering lies in his acting toward someone because of a previous commitment that he's made to them. Now, of course, what we have here also when it says that God remembered is a form of anthropomorphism. What does that mean? Anytime in the Bible when a human characteristic is assigned to God, it is referred to as an anthropomorphism. For instance, even though Jesus said in John 4 that God is spirit and they who worship God must do so in spirit and in truth, yet at the same time the Bible can speak of the eyes of God, the ears of God, the face of God, the hands of God, the feet of God, God's countenance. Does God have hands like a man's hands? No, God's spirit. But it's, it's an anthropomorphism. Descriptions are used in the Bible that you and I can relate to. The Bible is not written in a language that you and I cannot relate to. And so when it says that God remembered, that is a form of an anthropomorphism. Now, that's the way it's used here when it says that God remembered Noah and the animals. Did God forget? Does God forget anything? No. But again, it's language that we can relate to. And so what's being said here is that God remembered his former commitment to Noah. And when God remembered Noah, what did God do? He acted in Noah's behalf once again. Now, you know, there must have been some times during those 370 days that Noah was shut in upon the ark. There must have been some days that Noah wondered if maybe God had forgotten him. Now remember, we know the end of the story. But the story was unfolding to Noah. During the 370 days of these events unfolding, some of the days and nights must have gotten very, very long for Noah. He might have got a little bit weary of shoveling out of, as it's called, mucking out some of those stalls. You think he got, got tired maybe of, of doing some of that. There must have been times that Noah thought, does God still remember me? Could you imagine being in a boat, even a large one at that, 370 days? That's quite a cruise, isn't it? (laughs) 
Now also we, we need to understand that from, from what the text indicates, there, there is no recorded evidence that God has spoken again to Noah since shutting Noah into the ark. God spoke to Noah, had him prepare the ark. When the day came, God shut him in. But we don't have any other evidence that God is actively speaking to Noah again at this point. What must we do in situations like that? Trust and wait patiently for the Lord. And as we trust and wait patiently for the Lord, what else do we need to do? We need to continue to do the very last thing that he commanded us, right? We need to stay obedient. Now folks, what a lesson that is for the church today. Because it might seem to us that time has marched on for a really long time. And the heavens seem silent. But what must we do? We must trust and wait patiently for the Lord. And we must carry on in obedience. Doing what God has commanded us to do. That's what Noah did. Chapter 8 and the chapters that follow are a reminder to us that God does not forget His children. Amen? Now, notice what Noah does. He releases, first of all, the raven and then the dove. Now, what a powerful symbol this would have been to Noah. When the raven didn't return, but the dove did return with with an olive branch in its beak. Folks, a dove with an olive branch in its beak is is such a powerful image that even today, down to this very day, we continue to use that as a symbol. A symbol of what? Peace. Exactly. As Dr. James Boyce writes, God also gives signs to his people today. God speaks in symbols And in ways that are almost as powerful as his voice. He gives an illustration of that. He gives the illustration of Dr. C. Everett Koop. Remember him? Surgeon General under Reagan. He gives the illustration of of Dr. Koop and his, his wife Elizabeth. Uh, In their book, Sometimes Mountains Move, they give the account of losing their son David who went on a, a mountain climbing expedition. And he, and he died. But leading up to David's death, which of course was a total surprise to them, but leading up to David's death, All of a sudden, just seemingly out of the blue, Dr. Coop was getting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters from parents who had lost children. He didn't realize why all of a sudden he was getting all these letters from parents who had lost children. And he and his wife sat down and went through all those letters and tried to very patiently and gently and lovingly respond to each of those letters. Not knowing at the time that the very things he and his wife were saying to all those parents in those letters were going to be words that they themselves were going to need to hang on to. You think it's a coincidence that God prepared Dr. Coop and his wife Elizabeth that way? I don't think so. God speaks to us in many ways, doesn't he? God spoke through the dove coming back with the olive branch in her beak. 
what, what, a, what a powerful message to the, to the world then, to Noah. That the world, having been destroyed by a flood, was once again drying out and it would soon be livable again. God also remembered Noah again with words. His words to Noah because he gave Noah very clear instructions. And what were those instructions? It was time for Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives and all of the animals to do what? To disembark from the ark. Now, verse 20 tells us a very remarkable thing. What's the very first thing that Noah appears to have done? He built an altar and he offers some of the clean animals, some of each of the clean animals, and he worships the Lord. He steps off the ark. Remember, he's been on that ark 370 days. You'd think almost he'd kick up his heels and go running, right? Woo! On dry land again. But apparently the very first thing he does is builds an altar, takes the clean animals, and offers sacrifices to God, and he worships God. Folks, what's one of the things that we're doing in worship? One of the things we're doing in worship is we're remembering the faithfulness of God. Right? Even in our weekly worship and offerings, what are we doing? We're remembering the faithfulness of God. While many people out in the world all around us, in fact, sadly, the majority of people in the world simply go from one week to another, spend one dollar after another. Christians pause on the first day of the week to worship God and to give Him their offerings. What are we doing? We are acknowledging the grace and the mercy of God. And with our offerings, we are acknowledging that God is the one who has provided all that we have. Worship is very fitting. People who don't worship God. Fail to see that they're, they're being disobedience to a very basic thing in Scripture. We are commanded each week to gather together as a corporate company of God's people and worship Him. We worship Him privately at home and our own devotions. But we gather together as the people of God and we worship God Remembering His grace and mercy and provision to us because He's worthy. At this time of the year, I want you to think of a story, another story in the Bible that shows the appropriateness of worshiping and as we worship, doing so with gratitude. Turn over to John, um, excuse me, not John, Luke. Luke chapter 17 with me for a moment. Luke chapter 17. You probably know the story well. Luke 17, beginning in verse 11. Luke 17, beginning in verse 11, says, On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? 
Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Who had received the cleansing? All of them had. Who should have returned and and given the Lord praise and gratitude? All of them should have. Every single one of them had the reason to do that. But only one did. Only one. Apparently the other nine just simply went their way to enjoy their lives and their newfound health. And so they're like the multitudes today who go about their lives failing to take time to return and give thanks to God in worship. Now, Noah's worship and his offering was pleasing to God. Now, in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 8, God says a, very, very, uh, a few very important things I want us to keep in mind. Look at verses uh, 21 and 22. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. What's a couple of very important things we see there? Well, first of all, we see mention being made of the depravity of man. We call this total depravity. Meaning that every part of man's being is affected by sin. Total depravity doesn't mean that We are as bad as we could possibly be. That's not what total depravity means at all. That every man is as bad as he could possibly mean. What total depravity means is that every part of us is affected by sin. Every part. Now folks, the Bible's position on this is is very clear. You, You hear even people in church sometimes talking about man's goodness but the Bible doesn't say that look back at chapter 6 verse 5 before the flood chapter 6 verse 5 the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually even even his thoughts and the intentions of his heart was evil and then Paul over in Romans chapter 3 one of the most classic text in the entire Bible on man's depravity says there there is none who does good and Paul stops and he repeats it with emphasis no not even one none good not even one there are none who seek after God total depravity Folks, man is a sinner in need of redemption. That's the Christian view of man. The Christian view of man is that man is a sinner in need of redemption. We cannot go to heaven the way that we are. Okay? Apart from God's work in a man's life, he's not good. We stand in need of God's redemption in our lives. And only then, after redemption, is man able to do the things that God desires of him to do. Now, secondly in these verses... Something we need to remember, verse 21 specifically, it, 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 it doesn't say 
what you might think immediately. It it does not say that God will not destroy the earth again. It doesn't say that, right? What it says is that God will not destroy the earth by flood again. And he repeats that down in chapter 9 and verse 11. Look at chapter 9 verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So again, God's not promising here that he's never going to destroy the earth again. He's just not going to destroy it with a flood. Now folks, here's a point that could possibly be a, a, a bit troublesome for those who believe that Noah's flood was only a regional flood. Because God says here that he'll never do that again. And yet, what do we see in the world even today? We see regional floods all the time. Right? You what? Maybe even tonight. tonight. We see regional floods all the time. And these regional floods do what? They cause massive destruction. And so again, we have to say what the Bible is saying in these chapters. Noah's flood was not simply a regional flood. It was a worldwide flood. And in verse 21 of chapter 8 and verse 11 of chapter 9, God is saying that he will not do that again. He will never again destroy all of mankind and all animals over the face of the globe in the same way that he did in Noah's flood. But is God going to destroy the earth again? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Second Peter chapter 3 says God's going to destroy the earth by doing what? By fire. <laughs> God's not an, env- an environmentalist. He's got a global warming policy, doesn't he? <laughs> He's going to burn the earth up. <laughs> you what? Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, we need to pray for those folks out there. Terrible, terrible what they're going through. Now, folks, as we get into chapter 9, I want you to notice what God does. It, it, it's not surprising here that God repeats the command to Noah that he originally did to who? To Adam and Eve. What's the command? Be fruitful and multiply. And so just like we can say that we are all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we also have to say we're sons and daughters of who? Of Noah and his sons and their wives. What's God doing here? God's starting over again with the human race. Now, God also points out that after the flood, the animal kingdom will now be afraid of mankind. Now, this is true for the most part. You go out into the wild, and for the most part, even the large wild beast do what? They run away from man. Now, I know... I know there's isolated exceptions to that. I'll never forget one time um, a story of uh, Don Warren. Don Warren is one of the most commanding figures I have ever met in my life. Don stands probably 6'3", 6'4". He graduated near the top of his class from Auburn University. He went on into the military 
He advanced up through the ranks, becoming a pretty high-ranking officer. And then he became a, a president and CEO of China Grove Textile Mills over in Gaston County. And this is back in the day when textiles were big. Don's about 75 or 78 now. Uh, Don's probably the most organized man I've ever met in my life. Uh, very, very commanding figure. Uh, he, he loves to go on big game hunts. He told me the story of going to Alaska and he had a hunting guide. And uh, his, his hunting guide was, he said, about 180 pounds. Little guy compared to Don. But anyway, Don said they, uh, they didn't really mean to. They jumped a grizzly bear that came flying down a little slope towards them, running wide open at them. And the guide looked at Don and said, Don't you turn and leave me here. He'll eat me and you both. Don said, What do we do? He said, Empty your rifle into him. You just keep your feet planted and empty your rifle into him. And so that's both what both of them started just emptying their rifle into that big old grid. By the way, that grizzly bear now, you can go over to Gastonia to the Shield Nature Museum. And down in the basement, they've got it. Don donated it to them. They've got it standing up. It's nine feet tall. Nine feet tall. But anyway, they were emptying their rifles into it, and it kept coming. It, it, it wasn't slowing down one bit. And it got right up to them. Have you ever seen that movie, Dances with Wolves? Kevin Costner. Remember that buffalo, how it got right up to him and collapsed as slid right up to him? You remember that in the movie? Don said that's what that grizzly bear did. Got right up to him, dropped dead, slid right up to their feet. Don said, Scott, I was, I was absolutely like jello. I was shaking and I was like jello. He said, we skinned it. He said, the the skin alone of that grizzly bear, the head and the, the skin, 200 pounds. I said, how'd you get it out of there? He said, strongest man alive. And I said, what do you mean? He said, that little 180-pound hunting guide I had. He carried his rifle and carried that bear, threw it over his shoulder. He said, I thought he was going to have to carry me out too. But he said, he carried all that out. <laughs> so... Grizzly bear may not be afraid, <laughs> afraid of you. If you're in Alaska and jump a grizzly bear and he's not in the right mood, he may want to eat you. But by and large, as he's saying here, the animal kingdom is what? It's afraid of us. Notice that man is now told that he can eat the wild animals. Now there is a stipulation. He's not to eat the, the animals with blood still in them. Now this means more than simply draining the blood. It means that even though we can eat the wild animals, we do so in a humane sense. What will wild animals do with one another? They'll attack one another and eat one another alive. They'll eat one another alive with the life still in the victim. You'll have an animal eating another animal with the life still in the victim. But what he's saying, we don't do that. You kill the animal first and then eat it. So there's even a humane touch to that. Uh, in addition to draining the blood out. Now, folks, it's interesting that in the first two chapters of the Bible and in the last two chapters of the Bible, what are men as far as their diet? Vegetarian. We see here also that if an animal kills a man, what's to happen to that animal? His life is to be taken. As they say, you're not, uh, uh, if an animal gets a taste of humans or a taste of human blood, what will it do? Go on killing 
So you take the life of the animal. Also, if a man takes another man's life, what's to happen? His life is to be taken. And the reason is given. What is the reason? Because we're made in the image of God. Now, those who oppose the death penalty will say that the death penalty is inhumane. Believe it or not, the death penalty is intended to be just the opposite. Humane. You get what I'm saying? Because there's a lesson in the death penalty. The person surrenders their life because they have brutally murdered somebody else. And so if society does that in the right way and consistently, what should it do in society? It should put a fear in people that they will not take another life. Maybe if society acted more swiftly and exactly in carrying out the death penalty, maybe there would be less murder, not more. Now, I know that the death penalty can be carried out sometimes with injustice. Maybe somebody gets accused wrongly or something. Uh, I'm not saying that we shouldn't build every safeguard possible into it. Of course we should. But just because something has the potential to go wrong from time to time doesn't mean that God has taken it off the table. He hasn't. In fact, he hasn't even taken it off the table in the New Testament. As the Old Testament went on to point out, and even as the New Testament follows up on it in Romans 13, an individual is not to carry out the death penalty. It is a penalty that society is to carry out. Now, what does that protect it against? Personal revenge. Personal revenge is not to enter into it, but rather society taking justice. Now, as I pointed out last week from verses 8 to 17, God made his covenant with Noah and Noah's sons and their families. And what did God put in the sky? God put the rainbow. And as I pointed out, what is the rainbow? It's a bow. And what's a bow? An instrument of war. But by hanging the bow in the sky, it's as if God is saying, my war with man has subsided. I've made peace with him. God executed his wrath against man with the flood, but with the flood over his wrath... At least for that purpose, for the time being, his wrath has been satisfied. And so God says, I'll see the rainbow and I pledge to you that I'll not destroy the earth again by flood. What kind of grace do we refer to that as? There's a word. Common grace. Common grace. What's common grace? Remember when Jesus said he makes his sun to shine on the just and the unjust and his rain to fall on the just and the unjust? That's common grace. Saving grace is what Christians enjoy, right? Because we've been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's saving grace. But all of mankind enjoys what kind of grace? Common grace. So in a sense, in a powerful sense, that rainbow being put up there in the sky is a sign of what? Common grace. A promise to men everywhere. Even a promise to... To unredeemed men. 
common grace. Now, look at verses 20 and 21. 20 and 21. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. What do we see there? We see very imperfect men and women in the Bible, don't we? Noah got drunk and he uncovers himself. You know what that means? Sin was alive and well in the new world. Sin was alive and well in the new world. Sin has been judged by the flood, but sin hasn't been erased altogether. Why? Because man is still what kind of creature? A fallen creature. If God had wanted to have eradicated sin altogether from the face of the earth, what would he have had to have done? Destroyed even Noah, right? He would have had to have gotten rid of everybody, including Noah and his family. But God couldn't do this, or God wouldn't do this. Why? Go back to Genesis 3 and verse 15. What do we see in Genesis 3, 15? The promise of God sending His Messiah, who would be the seed of the woman, who would crush the head of the serpent. God wasn't going to destroy the entire human race because his plan of redemption is still to do that. But again, this scene right here with Noah shows something about man's sinful nature. Here's Noah. He was a righteous man. He alone was spared because of the flood. God has cleansed the earth with the, with the flood. And now here is is sin immediately at work again. From the one you'd least expect. It just goes to show how you can put a man in a new perfect environment in the case of Adam. And then Noah, a near perfect environment. So either a perfect environment or a near perfect environment, you can put a man in an environment like that and what will he still do? He'll sin. And folks, here's also Noah as an older adult. An older adult. Surely as an older adult, he knows better, right? And yet he doesn't. What's that show? Sin is no respecter of persons. Just because you're an older adult, does that mean you won't sin? No. Now just briefly, because I need to close, I, I have to just kind of speed up here. But, but I won't take time to read everything. But look at chapter 11. With the Tower of Babel. Let me just kind of cover this with a broad stroke a moment. What do we see with the Tower of Babel man is wanting to do? He's wanting to make a name for himself. Instead of wanting to glorify God, what's he say here? He's wanting to make a name for himself. And he's also thinking he can build his own way up to the heavens, not seeming to have learned the lesson at all that only God can bridge the gap between heaven and earth. Here he is thinking he can build this tower up to heaven. Pride. Now, there's some, there's some positive things to learn here from a negative example. What's a positive thing? Just think of what men can accomplish if they were to work together for the glory of God, right? 
God's put great gifts and skill into man, remember? Whose image are we made in? We're made in the image of God. If men would come together and work for the glory of God instead of letting personal ego and sin and pride get involved, just think of what could be accomplished. What's the old saying? United we stand, divided we fall. How true. Because their motives were bad and their sinful egos were at work, God came down and confused them. He did so by confusing their language. Because if they couldn't understand one another, they couldn't work together in harmony. And so God used this as an occasion to scatter man over the face of the earth. Now they should have learned a lesson. What's the lesson? God needs to be where? First. But have we even learned that lesson today? No. No. Men still do things out of sinful pride and ego to make a name for themselves instead of giving glory to God. What do most presidents want to leave? A legacy for themselves. Everybody does that to some degree. Sinful pride, ego. Now folks, what what all is going on in chapter 11 is setting us up for something very, very important that's going to be worked out in the rest of the Bible. God's scattering men over the face of the earth, but he's setting it up that that while he will not destroy all of mankind again for the time being, what's he going to do? He's going to raise up a remnant. And out of that remnant, he's going to build a nation for himself. And then who's going to come out of that remnant? The Messiah. The Messiah. And what's the Messiah going to do? He's going to deal with man's sin once and for all. Right? And so chapter 11 is setting us up for the beginning of that storyline. And again, that storyline will continue through the pages of the rest of the Bible but we certainly see in the story of Noah that God is a God of judgment yes but he's also a God of what grace and mercy starting over again with the human race Folks, is the Bible not the most interesting book on the face of the earth? Fascinating. Fascinating. 